Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to another edition of More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay. With me today are Dr. Natalie Alinos from Harvard in charge of health and human rights. And along with me, of course, is Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, higher expert, higher education consultant, and always a two, our, our best friend, sidekick, bon vivant, raconteur, if you will, Nick Remison. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good morning from all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, unfortunately, uh, Representative Roy is not going to be able to join us this morning, sadly, because he is busy legislating on the floor as we speak. And to put a little context on all of this, uh, today is Thursday morning as we record this. And as such, uh, the news today is obviously flooded with you know events in Texas and what actually happened down in Uvalde, and it's certainly most sad. And with that, it falls to us to find a way to participate in that national conversation in a reasonable way. And as I've told our guests and everyone here this morning, I'm hoping that we have an opportunity to bring more light to the conversation than heat. Right now, there's a lot of heat out there and a lot of differing opinions. And so that said, the question before us is, 2A or not 2A? That is the question. Everyone is questioning the Second Amendment, its interpretations, and so on. And that's going to be uh, brought before Congress at some form, which, of course, it may well be denied again. Um, and this has been going on for a long time, going all the way back to Sandy Hook uh, and uh, the fact that, you know, there was a, a bill, a reasoned bill put forward following that by Senators Manchin and Toomey, which didn't make it at that time, unfortunately. Uh, so. This is going to be perhaps yet another attempt uh, of many in Congress to figure out whether there's anything that can be done about this. And we want to explore some of those options this morning. And it's not an easy discussion to have, no matter which way you come at it. So that said, we have arranged for uh, what I believe are stellar guests to help discuss this, understand uh, what it means to own a gun, what it means to be responsible, what it means to operate in a way that is intelligent, enlightened, and informed under the Second Amendment. And I'll also let them, of course, expand on that. And Dr. Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you for the introductions. Well, I'll tell you, I'm very pleased and honored to have uh, two extremely highly qualified guests today. Robert uh, McCrory, uh, we all refer to him as Mac. Morning, Mac. Uh, Good morning, everyone. And his wife, Stavrul. And she is also highly qualified weapons trainer, as well as a YouTube channel 
uh, provocateur. <laughs> she has some wonderful, wonderful insights in terms of not only gun ownership, but also gets into the details of training. Uh, I have just been enthralled with your work on YouTube, and I think uh, anyone who owns a gun would do well to, uh, uh, to watch. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. And I'd also like to add, by the way, that in the course of our discussion this morning, we're not advocating any specific position, pro, con, or whatever. Again, we're just trying to illuminate it by bringing some expertise to what it actually means to own a weapon in a responsible way, and also to understand something a little bit more about the culture of gun ownership, the NRA, some things that the NRA does that perhaps people are not really all that aware of. Everyone has what I regard as a fairly monolithic understanding, a simple understanding, perhaps too simple. Um, and this is an extremely complex issue. So how it is that we apply Occam's razor to that complexity is, is the challenge of our discussion, if you will. Um, and with that, uh, I will uh, basically ask both of you perhaps to weigh in uh, with a little bit more on your backgrounds uh, and let's take it from there. So I did not grow up with guns at all. My family never owned guns. I started shooting because of my oldest sister when I was about 18 years old. Um, so one thing that I really appreciate about my personal journey into the world of guns is that I learned from another woman. And so that's really special to me. So she started teaching me about guns. And then when she moved out of state, I got licensed myself because I really enjoyed it just as a hobby at first. Um, so I got my own license. And then once I became licensed, I found that a lot of women in my life really wanted to try it because like me, they'd never been around guns and it was something that they were curious about, but were intimidated by, I think. So I started taking other women shooting very frequently. And that's when I realized that I really liked teaching other women how to safely use guns and that it was something that could also be for them. It's not just for men. So then I became an instructor through the NRA. I got a few certifications. I started teaching some women's only classes that were based around more the lifestyle of safety and personal protection, and then also concealed carry. And that kind of led me to YouTube so that I could reach a wider audience and even more women that way. And along that journey, that's how I met my husband. I actually took one of his concealed carry classes and that's where we met. So through him, I just learned so much more. Um, and he'll give you some of his background so you can see why he's so good at what he does. <laughs> so my background is dramatically different than Stav's. I grew up with firearms in the home. I don't recall learning how to shoot. It was probably at an extremely young age, and by today's standards, it would be overly extreme. Uh, but I was probably shooting firearms at like the six-year-old mark. So there was never a time in my life where I felt uncomfortable around firearms to my memory. Uh, I, I learned it. I, I would shoot regularly with my father. We, we, he was very active in different types of shooting, sports, traps, ski, you know, rifle competitions, pistol, we, we did it all uh, as, a, as a young man. I grew up with firearms, you know, very, very much a part of my childhood. Uh, I, I liked them. I enjoyed them. I always looked forward to, to shooting days. Uh, I was a very much an outdoors kid, hiking, camping, fishing, hunting, shooting. That was, that was basically what I did. And I played hockey. Hockey was like the only normal kid thing I did. You know, I played some baseball and some other sports, but 
I was very much an outdoorsy kid. Uh, it, it became so much a part of my life that I just felt extremely natural to join the military at 18. I thought that that was like where I could like best serve my community, my country, and my talents, uh, at least the way I saw them. So I joined the Marine Corps at 18, spent 10 years as a Marine. In that time, I became a firearms instructor at both, at actually all three disciplines, which is primary marksmanship instructor and range coach. And then a Sawick, which is, you know, that's, that's a little bit, that's a little bit elevated, but the firearms packages I put together for the military, uh, for the Marine Corps and my company kind of led me down the training road. And I ended up going on a training operation to South America. And in that training operation, I was, I was joined with a whole bunch of other trainers from all over the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps reserves. And I became real close friends with a lot of firefighters and police officers that were in the Marine Corps as well as working their civilian jobs as firefighters and police officers. And that was the decision I made that I was going to get out of the Marine Corps and try to become a firefighter or a police officer. So I started that process. I got deployed again after that first deployment. But after I came home from my second deployment, uh, I was basically hired instantly as a police officer. uh, And they knew exactly what I did in the Marine Corps. So they immediately made me a firearms instructor. And now I'm, I'm past 18 years as a police officer. I've been an instructor all those 18s. It started with firearms and then it branched into everything else. I'm the training officer for my department. So I teach everything that can be taught at the law enforcement level, basically. So that's what I've been doing. And about 13 years ago, I got involved at the Mass Firearms School and started running their elevated programs. And I, I did the basic class as well. But Everything after the basic class, whether it be concealed carry, and that series was six separate classes, one through six. Then we got into uh, home defense classes, uh, critical care, trauma care classes, active shooter classes, pepper spray classes. I, I organized, put all those together, and I would, I would run all of those classes for the Mass Fire School. So I have the military training, the police training, and the civilian training, and it's, it's all kind of, it all surrounds firearms training, however you look at it. Yeah, let me start with a question, uh, Mac, because uh, I I ran into you uh, uh, into your training session. Uh, I'm also a member of Mass Firearms, and I have a concealed carry license, uh, and constantly looking to upgrade and continue my training as a both military and a uh, police officer. Uh, and a private citizen and a gun enthusiast help all of us uh, both of you understand the difference between being a gun enthusiast and being in the military i mean most people equate that if you're in the military uh, you shoot guns and that's a gun enthusiast Uh, but there is a difference isn't there but it's actually probably way more dramatic than you, you would think. And it, and, it, and it goes right into the, the police world uh, as well. Like the, the people that I know in my, like my gun club circle, maybe competitive shooters, uh, you know, people I know through that circle or someone you might describe as a gun enthusiast have a dramatic, large amount of information on firearms. And what I mean by that is, you know, muzzleloader, black powder, musket type stuff, you know, all of those, uh, all the way through modern firearms, bolt action, lever action, single action and revolvers, double action revolvers, semi-automatic pistols of every variety. If you give a gun enthusiast a firearm, they probably can tell you what it is right off the bat, how to load it, how to shoot it, how to clean it. Now you flip that over to like a military 
or a police mindset, if you give them their gun, you give a United States Marine an M16, and they might only carry M4s now. Back when I was in, it was an M16A2. They can do everything you could ever possibly want them to do with that rifle, including take it apart, put it back together, blindfold. But if you gave them an 1873 lever action, the gun that won the West, you know, that you see it in movies, they will have no idea, number one, what it is or how to make it work. For the most part, the bulk of United States Marines, I would say most of them don't know that. And that is even worse in the police field. You give your police officer their pistol, they'll probably be pretty good with it. You give them anything else, they do not know what they're doing for the most part. They're only trained very linear. This is your firearm. Make sure you know how it works, and, and that's it. But like other things, they I get phone calls all the time from not only my own police department, but other police departments where they they get a gun and they're like, I don't, I don't even know how do you how do you unload this? Like what I need you to come to the station. I don't know what this is. Like, I'm on my way. You know, so very common. Gun enthusiasts versus military and police, very different. And their training philosophies are dramatically different as well. So what they do for training or what they do for fun is, is much different. So I want to add, by the way, uh, some interesting parallels that I think might be appropriate here. I'm listening to the conversation and, and picking up some nuance in all of this, which, which fascinates me. Um, and I'm going to draw the uh, analogy of airplanes and automobiles. That is, as far as transportation goes, we all get a license to drive. There are other licenses for motorcycles, for heavy equipment vehicles, and so on. And so there's a specialized kind of training that goes on. You know, if you want to drive a school bus, that's not the same thing as driving a car. But we all end up getting qualified for something. And yes, uh, I put out the painful analogy that we have actually seen in certain demonstrations that cars have actually been used as weapons, as trucks as well, where people have weaponized these things. Uh, and that's an important distinction. Uh, same thing with an airplane. We've seen people weaponize airplanes. Uh, and again, there's this training issue. Uh, I being a pilot and a flight instructor, you have to train not only in general aviation, but you also have to train in time and type. Time and type training can take six months for certain airplanes. And and so there are these specialties that you're pointing out within the entire culture. As you say, there's the M M14, M16, and then there are older weapons that people wouldn't really be familiar with. So so that said, it illuminates to me that the entire culture of gun ownership and whatnot really does resemble, in many respects, the same culture of any other avocation. You know, mine obviously being private flying. Um, and the same is true with boating. So I think it, it points I mean, to the vast majority of people out there who want to participate in this uh, and do so in a responsible way. And Natalia, you have something. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump in because this conversation is so difficult for me to be listening to. And, you know, I think it's really important if guns are legal for them to be, um, you know, for people to know how to use them. I agree that safety is really important, but Going back to the question of like, you know, we are coming out of, of several weeks of two mass shootings, you know, in Buffalo and then now in a school. And I am, you know, and maybe my kind of peers are different. You know, I'm a mom of, of three kids, uh, you know, a nine-year-old who's in third grade and, you know, five-year-old twins. And, you know, parents are panicked and, and heartbroken. And it's why are we allowing our country to be 
an exception compared to the rest of the world. Why are guns, you know, why are guns in people's hands? And the 18 year old who just turned 18, you know, a child basically, both, both of these shootings have been committed by 18 year olds, right? I, I mean, it is absolutely heartbreaking. And, you know, for our guests, I, I think you should know, I'm, I'm an epidemiologist and a lot of people, so we look at data. We look at data comparing the United States to the rest of the world. We are by far the most, we have the most guns and we have the most deaths, homicides, suicides too. And we have seen that even changing gun laws, uh, you know, to age 21 to having a gun prevents suicide, you know, among youth. And it's like, I am heartbroken. I am heartbroken today. I am heartbroken um, that our country, you know, and, and I grew up in Greece, so guns were not the norm. And, you know, my sisters, they all, we all live in the United States right now. And people are saying, you know, is it time to move back to Greece? Like, is this, this shooting is really becoming an existential challenge. So I know that our conversation is around safety, but I can't be part of it without sort of saying that fundamentally, this country is broken. We have not, you know, we have way too many deaths, including police involved killings, uh, Mac. And I do want to talk about that because I do think that training police officers to know when not to use their guns is really important. So I think that confidence that you give them through training, but police involved killings is also uh, an epidemic in this country. Are you familiar with the stats, the actual numbers on police involved shootings? Yes, I am. We have right. a whole team. My my team at Harvard, uh, we ha lead a whole center on, on uh, police involved killings. So we have- so You must know that about 4% of arrests, you, there's use of force then, right? So Will, for 100 people that police across the nation arrest, 4% of them, we actually have to use any form of force. You know that, right? Well, I, I, I mean, I, we only look among... You want to bring this yeah. up. Okay, so if we arrest 100 people, 96% of them will go into handcuffs without any injuries, without any level of force. Four out of 100, we have to use force. Of that 4%, between 1% and 2% of those... So now we're down to one to 2% of the 4% that need to be arrested. Those actually involve some sort of use of force that involves a firearm where we actually shoot them. So we're dealing with millions of people all the time. We choose to, let's just say, arrest 100 of them today. 96% of those people that need to be arrested will go into handcuffs peacefully and not be injured. 4% may be injured at some point. And let's say, I'll even round up for you, let's say 2% of that 4% that need to be arrested might end up being shot. Now, if you can find me any other profession on the planet Earth that can go into numbers that are that positive, because doctors are nowhere near as good as us, surgeons are nowhere near as good as us, the amount of people that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, the amount of crime and the amount of people we arrest, we are not shooting people like the media or maybe yep. people you talk to think. We are doing everything in our possible mindset to not shoot people but do some people need to be shot yes it's unfortunate but it does absolutely but the idea that police are out there you know out there using excessive force regularly or anything like that no there are human beings that are police officers but as far as a profession goes we are absolutely killing it we are awesome and if you actually look at the people and the situations we're dealing with then you, there's just no argument. And I'm a huge fan of badge cameras. I'm so glad that they're on the rise because the more and more badge cam footage that you actually watch, the more and more you'll see that it's just the very, very tiny amount of population of police officers going out there and doing things incorrectly. 
and then when one one police officer out of the you know many many thousands of us there are when they screw up nobody gets more angrier than fellow police officers when we see that video we're like you stupid because we know that some people are going to look at that and think that that's all of us like nope that's an isolated bad cop and that cop made a bad decision and did a bad thing but statistically speaking i'm extraordinarily proud of my profession because i mean i've i've never shot anybody as police officer and i can tell you that i've made many many i well if not a thousand high hundreds of arrests and my use of force the amount of time i've had to use force is very low so you know I, i've had a very consistent career with those numbers i can almost always talk someone into cuffs when they need to be talked into cuffs and very seldom do i need to use force and i've never had to shoot anyone and i'm coming up on 18 years and there's only one police officer that i work with in my 54 person department that has had to shoot someone so you're talking about 53 other people that have are in a similar boat than me and one guy was forced to shoot someone and it was a absolutely necessary shoot by all standards and it's just that's a very common style of policing there are very few police officers that do have to shoot someone and i think that we get painted with an incorrect brush all the time all the time yeah go ahead mike let me facilitate let me facilitate part of this conversation because uh, I think all of us would agree when you look at the overall statistics, um, Mac is absolutely correct. The majority of arrests in this country don't end in uh, an officer pulling his or her weapon uh, or using their weapon. But then when you take that 4%, and you blow it up, and here's what happened. Um, and I have the same concern that in the media, when the media portrays something, and it's not just with guns, this is a lot of the media. When they talk about, for example, the people who are in the Republican Party who say this, they'll use a percentage but then what they will not do is give you the total number. It's only a percentage. When they use like surveys, it's only a portion of the population that was surveyed. It's not the entire population. And they'll never tell you that that in, as we say in research, they'll never tell you and stuff. For example, uh, it, it was a thousand people. And now what we're doing is extrapolating to the uh, 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 to the entire population. But let's get to the heart of it. The issue in this country, and I agree with Natalia, we have more weapons in this country than any other country on the face of the earth. We have more weapons in the hands of our citizens than we have cars. And the question becomes, as we're talking about safety, what are the requirements? Which gets back to Pete's question, that is, and to Natalia's point, what kind of regulations are there? But before we get into what regulations should be there, uh, let's talk about, again, I want to make that distinction between the enthusiast, because I'm beginning to become more of an enthusiast, but I'm concerned about the access, which I think, uh, Stavrul, uh, you, you know, your particular videos go to. I'm concerned that there is more of an emphasis in this country on quote unquote personal protection with people who do nothing more than buy a gun and then think all I'm looking for now is an opportunity to take my gun out and use it. Can I can I say something? Because I wanted to 
respond to Natalia's comment earlier. Um, and it kind of goes into this. You were asking about like active shooter events. If you grew up in Greece, right? I grew up with a Greek family. And I was actually thinking about this while I was doing my hair this morning. The culture that kids are growing up in right now is so vastly different from the way I grew up. There's no like, there's no older generations influencing the younger generations. Like I grew up very involved in a big Greek community. So I had like 80 year olds, 70 year olds, 60 year olds influencing my life and instilling these values in me that I think made me a pretty responsible person. Now kids are growing up without these influences in these vacuums of like, they see their peers at school and their teachers and then their parents and that's pretty much it. They don't have any like values being instilled. And then we stuck them in their homes for two years because of COVID. And what did we expect to happen? And it just keeps getting worse. Kids are isolated. They're playing violent video games. They have no positive influences in their lives. And they go down these holes and they end up alone and angry. And they will use whatever tool they have to take out that anger on other kids, on innocent people. And it doesn't, I'm sorry, the gun doesn't matter. They'll do it with a knife, they'll do it with a bomb, they'll do it with anything. And we're focusing on the guns and that's not the issue. I understand that there need to be ways to keep guns out of the hands of people who are mentally ill, but you can't always tell when someone's gonna snap. They might've never done anything bad in their whole life. And all of a sudden, all of the bad things that happen to them come crashing down on their psychology and they can't handle it and then they take it out on a bunch of innocent people. We're not focusing on the problem and we're trying to put a band-aid on like this giant gaping wound in our culture. I agree with you, Stephanie, that we need to focus on root causes of, on homelessness, on racism and hatred that exists, on you know issues of, of mental health. Although as a public health expert, I should put a caveat that uh, people living with multi mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence. And, you know, in, in that, that is important to, to put out because I think the narrative of people being mentally ill, yes, there's a few outliers as you, as Max Like said, all of the active like, shooters. That, that yeah, happens. so some yeah. of them. Every, the single, every single one. <laughs> yeah, so, but I do think that, you know, in other countries too, you face, you know, the same, like if you have a, a weapon that is, uh, the weapon matters in terms of how much harm you can cause. So that we can agree on. The anger is there. You know, we know from Australia and other places that have moved to more restrictive laws, they have eliminated or reduced, you know, the numbers of times of the mass killing. So I agree with you, the root cause we need to address, but I don't think it's a band-aid to address guns because guns can kill many people very quickly. Uh, you know, uh, if you're holding a knife, you can't kill 19 people in That's not years. true. It happened in China, wasn't it? it China? Was an yeah. Oh, an axe. Okay. Yeah. Axes, knives. I mean, if you look at the data by countries, like the U.S. just has a lot more killings and they're, you know, gun violence. Like, For more not, I mean, we, can look, we can have a statistics conversation. You know, I'm, I'm an epidemiologist. I look at statistics and numbers all the day. I don't think that's, you know, it's valid to say that that you would have the same numbers of deaths if guns, if there were no guns. Like, it just is not true. But I agree, well, with, I you agree with you that I we would, need to deal with the root causes. A, a, great, root a great way to look at that. And I think the, the, uh, the point you're making, I've, I've had this conversation many times is like comparing New York City to London, right? So if you compare the data from New York City to London, right, they will be very, very consistent with the amount of assaults, the amount of assault and batteries, the amount of 
you know, assault and battery's deadly weapon. Uh, what, what, what the difference is, and I think that this is kind of the point you're making is, the deaths are much higher in New York because in London, they're beating people with clubs and stabbing them. And in New York, they're shooting them. So I can see where you're going with the math that yes, the gun is a much more efficient tool to kill people. And they're more likely to live if they're hit with a club or stabbed than shot. However, I'm not a big fan of getting hit with a club or stabbed either. No, need to address the root causes on in both London and New York. No, that, that's exactly the point I was trying to make, Max. I got and you. I got what you're saying with the, the, yeah, the gun is a very efficient way to kill lots of people, but it doesn't take away, you know, like London, you can't carry, uh, you can't carry a knife with a point anymore now because they've gone down, they've, they've legislated no guns. Okay, but that didn't solve the violent crime. It just solved the efficiency of the violent crime. So now knives became everyone's, you know, all the bad guys' tools and the good guys don't carry them because they follow the law, but they're still having a dramatically high amount of stabbings because you can't, you can't just legislate all the way down to where no longer can you get a pointed knife in England. You could obviously, you know, sharpen a knife like with a grind wheel or, you know, so, so I, I fully understand your argument and it's, and it's definitely an argument to have. Like it, it, there is, there is something to be said about the efficiency of firearms and because they are designed very well to do, you know, what was recently done with them. However, when you, when you solve one problem, like if you take away all the guns, which I think would be an impossible thing to happen in America. Uh, if you did, let's say you did take away all the guns, I still think you're going to have an extremely high violence. And I can tell you from a police officer's standpoint that like heroin has been illegal since long before I became a cop, yet I deal with it all the time. So just making a law that gets rid of guns doesn't mean they're not going to end up in this country because there's a lot of laws about illegal drugs, yet it's a dramatic thing that I deal with is overdoses. And so where's it coming from? There's a law against it. How could people possibly get heroin? There's a law against it. Oh, well, they find a way. So if we, if we take away all the guns from all the good guys, I guarantee you the bad guys will still find a way. And there's something to be said about that. You cannot legislate uh, violence out of people that needs to come from a more, from a different perspective. And I can also just add to Stavrula's saying is like, when you are raised in a family where there's a like family dinners and your grandparents and your cousins and like you know you have a close-knit family and you have a close-knit community when you're raised by a village and your neighbors are watching you and you're what it's so much different than nowadays where everyone's like that ain't my kid yeah like Mm -hmm. the the societal difference today versus even when i grew up and my mother's 100 percent greek so i grew up in in, in, and half my family was big so you know it's i i think that as the culture switches uh, we're going to be dealing with much more of this. And I can tell you from my 18 years as a police officer, I'm dealing more with mental health issues now than I ever have. So I don't know exactly where it all comes from, but I can tell you that the amount of Section 12s that I'm doing now and the amount of responses that I have that end up being non-Section 12s where we convince people just to go to the hospital on their own, is it's a gigantic part of my job. And that wasn't a gigantic part of my job when I was three, four years on the job, when I, three, four years as a police officer. So there is a decay in, in, in mental health. There is a decay in services for mental health. And you combine mental health problems with very efficient weaponry. Mm-hmm. Well, there's your result. Like, you know, so do I blame the gun? No, because if you take away 
all of the, you know, all of the good guy guns, then bad guys are the only ones with the guns kind of deal. So yeah. I, 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 I'm open. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of middle ground here to discuss, but I always feel like one area is attacked more than the other. And as a guy who teaches active shooter for both civilians and law enforcement, every, I cannot think of one active shooter, not one, that didn't exhibit like tremendous amounts and major red flags of mental illness, hatred, anger prior to their launching their active shooter event. There's always these like huge, they're all, they're all extremely mentally ill, angry and violent. And then they launch this attack and it would be great if we could focus in on stopping before the attack, but not jumping down on all good, you know, good people's rights. It's the, the, there's gotta be a middle ground somewhere. I, I want to address this and kind of take it back to what uh, Dr. Walker Jones mentioned about us. Uh, you know, someone goes out, buys a gun, and says, okay, my home's protected. I am a gun owner. I have a concealed uh, carry uh, license in the state. And I have one time in my life, not too long ago, pointed a gun at another human being. And I won't go into it in detail, but it was something where I did feel that my home and in particular, my family, my wife could, could be threatened by what I was presented with, which is someone on the property who, who made an attempt to get in a door. It ended without my having to do anything other than use the gun in my presence to subdue the person. And I was very blessed that I have a, a former police officer who lives across the street from me who was home at the time, who also came over and just, I mean, I am still stunned by the efficiency and the coolness with, that he exhibited and took, took, took the um, situation in hand. I did everything that I had been trained to do in terms of where the gun was, where I kept it, how I held it. It was and remains to this day a disturbing, highly disturbing incident in my life. Something that I hope never to even come close to again. Harken back uh, briefly to address uh, Natalia's point clearly um, and, and hopefully positively, as well as uh, cast it against uh, the discussions that we were having about training and licensing and, and license to carry and so on, uh, concealed carry. Uh, the Supreme Court at this point has before it a New York law uh, with respect to, uh, in, in the shortest language, justification for a concealed carry request. What the state of New York is trying to deal with, obviously, is gang violence. And I don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do uh, with respect to this, but it is one of the many uh, contentious issues before the court. And the essence of the law is, uh, yes, you can request a license for concealed carry in New York, but you do have to show some cause or you have to demonstrate uh, you know, some reason for and that it isn't just uh, an automatic given. And it points to what I mentioned earlier as, as maybe one of the cases that are moving through the system that tries to address what is the real Occam's razor issue on the table, which is uh, how do we keep guns out of the hands of people who are stressed beyond reason? As Stravrula pointed out, you know, there are many people, we never hear about them, 
They understand guns. They're well-educated. They know what they're doing and they deal with it responsibly. Uh, but at the same time, from time to time, uh, guns come to the hands of those who are not only prepared not to understand their proper use, but they're also even not prepared to live properly. They're distressed, they're ill, they're suffering, um, and they're angry. Um, so the here again, the real challenge is to find a way to parse that circumstance, to preserve and make whole the right of responsible people against the ability to divine in advance and prevent irresponsible people uh, from having weapons. That's the, that's the difficulty. Um, you know, I, I don't have any easy answers, save that there are already a lot of good things, many things in the NRA that are addressing this. Uh, you've addressed some of those things. Um, and also, uh, Mac, per your background, you've gone through a lot of professional training, both in the military and following that. Those organizations understand probably they are probably the best experts at understanding who should have, who ought to be considered on a request of concealed carry and what the criteria might look like for that. Um, and thus they could perhaps provide some insight as to how such a law should be exercised if one did exist and, and how they might bring that wisdom to bear on making sure that guns hand, are handed to people deserving, people capable, people trained, and not otherwise. So that's, that's the real challenge, isn't it? Well, I'm gonna add a little more complexity to this because I think in many instances, we, uh, we end up either in a binary kind of situation where we think it's a matter of law and right. gun. And I think Natalia's point is well taken that one of the things we don't do in this country is to look, and I think, uh, Mac, you hit it right on the head. You're beginning to see more and more situations where people demonstrate or exhibit some type of mental either instability or some kind of mental concern on the part of others around them. And yet, those folks who still maintain that there ought to be free access to guns. Don't then do the same thing with the absolute free and open access to health care. Now, it seems to me that we need to start to focus on, for example, the young man in, uh, uh, in Texas. Apparently, there was some, uh, some he did exhibit some uh, red flags. But the problem is he didn't have any access to health care. As a matter of fact, the governor of Texas admitted that there was no access for this young man at all in a 40-mile range of where he lived. So how is it we can advocate on the one hand that guns are not the problem, but yet we don't deal with some of those things that are problems? And I'd really like to hear uh, uh uh, more about how do we start to integrate some of the things that we know that our citizens need into this discussion. It's not just about guns and laws, and I think there can be some legislation around access, 
But you're right. We're never going to change human behavior. And the one thing that we do need to do is to provide access to those things that can help people who do have problems. Yeah, don't everybody speak at once. Uh, (laughs) The truth is, like, this is one of those things that, like, my dad would have told me, you know, if you don't know what you're talking about, don't talk. Like, so... I, I don't have any comment because I, I get to ride that train on a, on a nightly basis and see what society is, but I truthfully don't have, I don't know how to fix it. Like I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a police officer and on the side note, I'm a, I'm a gun guy. Right. So it's like, that's what I can talk about. And that's what I, but there's, you're a hundred percent right. As far as there, there needs to be something, but I don't know exactly where that is. And I also don't know, um, the the delicate nature of modern society maybe doesn't have the capability of dealing with some mental illness in the way that it used to deal with it, where people were kind of, I would say, incarcerated for their mental illness. And since that change in the, in the 80s, there's a lot of people on the street that maybe shouldn't be on the street, but they didn't really commit a crime, but they're like a ticking time bomb. And they're on meds, and when they don't take their meds, that's when I show up, you know. And, and I deal with that all the time. The amount of medication uh, of, of of like, you know. And again, I only deal with a small portion of the population, you know. And it's I only deal with people that need me to deal with them, essentially. So I don't like oh, there's thousands upon thousands of people in my own community that I'll never meet and never know, but I deal with a lot of the same people over and over and over again. And they're on, you know, when you get a medication list for them, if they go into the hospital, you have to like bust out two pieces of notebook, you know, in order to give it to the paramedics because they're going on the ambulance and you get the, the list of medications they're on. They're, they're seeing two or three different doctors. They're on 15 different forms of medication. And it's like, well, no wonder, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know where it comes. I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg as far as what came first. Is, is medication screwing people up? Is society screwing people up? Should those people not necessarily be released from the hospital like as soon as they get in there? I mean, I've, I've section 12 people in the morning and then section 12 them again in the afternoon. So that means they went to the hospital, they spoke to a clinician, clinician said they were okay, send them back out, and then they either attempted suicide or did something overly on the, over the top, and then I have to send them back to the hospital within a 24-hour period. The same thing has occurred with overdoses, where we've you know, basically forced people to go to the hospital because they've overdosed. They get out and they overdose again, that same shift. I run a 10-hour shift, so you can think of the timeline. So you know, I, I don't know the answer. I just know that things aren't working really well. And then it just it ends up landing back on the street. And, and, you know, every active shooter is a mental health ticking time bomb. How do you keep guns out of their hands, I think, is like the number one argument that people should have is how do we keep firearms out of the, like, the potential time bomb hands? Because the, the deadly mix is this, a weapon that can cause a lot of damage. So for a gun, but we've seen it with vehicles and swords and axes, but a very damaging weapon in the hands of someone who has the intent and capability of using it for whatever reason, it's, it's always mental health related in the active shooter world. Like how do you intervene right there? Cause like, why do we waste so much time and effort on pulling guns out of responsible people's hands when we should be all on both sides of the aisle, right, left, Republican, Democrat, everybody should know, okay, the deadly mix is this, severe mental health and access to a firearm. Let's work on that problem together and let's see if we can 
you know, do something right there, but it's, it's just so divided, you know, and it's just like, everybody wants to fight their fight instead of fighting the fight that's right in front of us. Also, Mac, I, go ahead, Natalia. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think it is really important to, to start talking about these kind of cases. So, you know, strengthening background checks, like really intensive background checks. And then, you know, every two years, I think, Savrula, you said it, you don't know if someone, you know, is feeling fine. And then two years later, they have like a mental health breakdown or something. So, you know, having continuous ways to re-up your license, you know, to just go in, you get a medical check or you get someone to ascertain, to do some sort of screening. Anyways, that would be a lot. To, to be honest, the mental health challenges, and again, I don't want to stigmatize because as you said, Nick, the person who was on your door was mentally ill. It was more likely that you accidentally pulled the trigger and <clears throat> killed him than he would have harmed you in retrospect. I completely understand like you felt unsafe, but those things happen too, that you unintentionally kill someone who is with a mental illness, who is in your backyard or dressed up. You know, there was a New York City case, uh, you know, someone dressed up in kind of war gear and, and it was shot dead, you know, like people with, with schizophrenia. And so it is, you know, the data does show us that people with mental, severe mental illness are mistaken mm-hmm. often for being mm-hmm. at risk. And, you know, Nick, I'm so glad you had a police officer across the street who could come and do this person without putting you at risk. But I should say that, you know, what I don't, I haven't followed, but, you know, there's this meme going around that, you know, women, when they seek an abortion, they have to wait a few hours or a few days, you know, they get counseled. Like, could it be that, you know, you, you seek a gun, you're an 18 year old boy and you go to buy a gun and they kind of consult with you. Is it for, you know, they check in with you and say, is it because you want to go hunting? Why is it you want to do it in some sort of way to ascertain whether that person is capable of having a mature ability to handle owning a gun, which is a deadly weapon. So I really do think that if we're going to have them, we need to have really, really stringent safeguards and continuous because you're right, mental illness and kind of challenges and, and sort of the stress could come up later on after you've bought your gun. Can I add to this? And again, we're, we're going to slightly disagree, but I think agree, just like we kind of did already once here. Um, I'm going to upset a lot of my gun friends right now, and I don't do it deliberately, but it's, it's, it's hard to be a gun guy at the gun range with a lot of civilian shooters who might think that like a lot of like constitutional carry comes up with things like that, and then be a police officer that deals out in the street and sees it. So I'm going to, I'm just going to kind of give you an example of how Massachusetts does things and how it's not super two way friendly and will never have constitutional carry, but the results are extremely good. So just so everybody here knows, if you wanted to carry a firearm in the state of Massachusetts, you have to go to a class and you have to get a certificate. From there, you have to go to your, your local police station. This is important. This is actually a very important step in one of the many reasons Massachusetts has much lower gun violence than a lot of other states. You go to your police department, the police department you live in, and you present that certificate along with an application, and you generally have to have references um, and you know different things. That application is then looked at by a what you might want to call a background investigator. And they go through everything from your driving record to anybody you put on your application and every dealing you ever had with law enforcement. And that's actually a key part of the equation that I'll get back to. But they do a full background at the local PD level. If you pass that, your application is then sent to the state police level. The state police looks at you at the state level and the federal level. So now any involvement you've had in law enforcement before, 
Now it's been looked at. If you pass that, it comes back to your PD, your local PD, your local chief decides on what type of permit you can get, which this is where a lot of like all my gun friends are going to be mad at me for, but the, the local chief decides if you're going to get a license to carry firearms or a license just to own firearms and you can't carry them. You can get a license that can only be non-high capacity. The chief has a discretion there. Then the license is issued to you. So now you have your license. So that's a relatively good process. There's a lot of background investigation that goes into that. Now, the, 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 the after effects of that are when you go to buy a firearm, you walk in the door and you have your license, which is a large background investigation, very robust. You have earned that license, right? You try to buy a firearm that day, that person at the gun shop picks up the phone and he does what's called a NICS check background on you. So they now call and they're calling at both the state level, but the state has access to the federal level. And they can see if you've had any involvement, any problems, any red flags since you actually got that card. If your background comes back okay, you are now authorized to buy that firearm, you can buy it, you can go out the door. Now, a lot of people really dislike that process. They believe in constitutional carry. And I am not, the only problem I have in that process is when chiefs of police access their own personal beliefs rather than following the law, meaning if you passed everything, you should be able to get the license you want. But some chiefs just have this political opinion that, nope, I don't want guns in my community. And that's really the only problem with the system. Because another thing that occurs is that the second there's a problem, like for instance, a mental health problem. If I deal with someone with mental health, my report goes to my lieutenant. That person has a license to carry or their firearms. We automatically send that to our issuing lieutenant who immediately contacts the correct authorities, usually in the NICS department, to make sure that that person cannot buy any firearms until they go through another review process. So it immediately shuts down their ability to buy firearms. And if, if they own firearms, we may actually remove those out of the home. We almost always do when it's a mental health thing. And then they have to prove cause to get them back. So Massachusetts has this extremely robust system that does a really great job of keeping guns out of the wrong people's hands. And another little aspect I told you I'd get back to it on is, and this is one part that, again, my gun people are going to hate me for this. And I apologize, but I've seen it work in real life is you might have someone who's dealt with law enforcement, let's say 10 times. And for all 10 times, everything they did would not pop on any background investigation. They committed no crime. There was no violence. There was no, there's nothing that's written in paper that says that that person should not own a gun. Yet, the local PD that dealt with that person has seen their behavior. It's been up and down all over. They've been sent to the hospital multiple times. They've gone willingly. There's been no Section 12, but they've been suicidal. They've been depressed. They've been all these things. That person, without the local authority saying, nope, don't give them a license to carry, without that authority that they can just stop someone right there, they can just go get in a lot of other states because it's never been a crime, because it's never been an actual legitimate on paper evaluated mental illness. That person could easily go get a gun in many other states. But in Massachusetts, the local PD would probably stop that. So we have so many great things in place to actually reduce crime in here. The problem is we go overboard in other aspects like Massachusetts gun compliance and firearm compliance and many chiefs just putting their own spin on it rather than following the rules. 
But there are many states that that is not followed. There are many states that are nowhere near as robust as Massachusetts. But we have a very involved process here. And I think that it's, it speaks to the low amount of gun violence we have up in this area. But we still have a lot of people that still carry firearms for self-defense without any issue. So, you know, I, I think that a lot of people could, could look at that process and understand where it all comes from, where it's going and why. And even if you're not a Second Amendment fan, you can kind of see how something like that does work relatively well compared to a lot of other states where it's just constitutional carry, which a piece of me still likes because of the, all the red tape involved. But there's just a lot of things that are missed. There's a lot of room for error when, like, for instance, you turn 18, you can buy a gun. Like, we just saw that that didn't work awesome. But uh, again, I don't have the exact solution, but, uh, but I have seen our process work very well multiple times. Well, you've also touched, Mac, on something that's very significant. We're all sitting here citing, you know, citing national statistics. We're all working with this very broad brush and, and that, I guess, somewhat thin understanding that the general public has uh, you know, with what has gone on in Texas and elsewhere. When you look at Massachusetts, frequently here in Massachusetts, we've been a bellwether state for a lot of great legislation, uh, effective legislation. Um, a lot of people forget that Obamacare began as Romney care in Massachusetts. Um, like it or not, the point is that we were a bellwether for trying to provide some kind of a program uh, to bolster public health. Um, the, uh, and, and there are four or five other states that have a bellwether reputation along with Massachusetts. So looking at our state statistics, yes, it's encouraging. So let me put that in context. I remember when I got my first car. 1966 brandy new Mustang. I was styling in high school. <laughs> that's when that's when people first realized, you know, nerds make money. <laughs> so so I had a great brand new car uh, in my senior year in high school. And I remember reading the stats at the time that there were somewhere between 40 and 45,000 people dying on the highway every year. And that was perhaps at a time I'm aging myself here when we might've been around in, in the 200 million mark for Americans. Uh, now we're at what, 360? And the number of people dying on the highway is now around 20,000. What happened? Well, along the way, safety laws, better road design, incremental improvements, car design. And yes, uh, legislation played a role in all of that with standardizing car design, doing things with respect to safely implementation in cars, all of that contributed to mitigating a problem to become approximately, when you look at all the stats, about 20% of what it was 50, 60 years ago. So if we could solve 80% of the problem, well, you know, that starts to sound like the Pareto principle. You can solve 80% of the problem. And if we could do that, that would, that would be a reason to cheer. That would be a reason to feel like we've gotten there. And your description of the mass law seems to be capable of contributing to that pretty significantly. Uh, so that's a good thing. And, and uh, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. And I, I don't know that Congress has the fully rounded understanding of, of what it takes to do this. And, and hopefully, you know, we can find a way for a few enlightened souls in Washington to rise up and say, this is the real issue and this is how we deal with it. And 
would have loved to hear some of your testimony, by the way, in Congress. <laughs> in other words, if they could hear some of what we were talking about today, it might be certainly very informative. And, and before we go, by the way, Stavrula, could you give us some information about how people can find you on YouTube? Yes. So my YouTube channel is She Equips Herself. Three words. Say that again. She Equips Herself. Okay. And so look for that and you can hear what Stavrula has to say. She Equips Herself <laughs> on YouTube. And that would be, I think, a, a great gateway to starting to enlighten yourself on the responsibilities of gun ownership. I'm going to end with something that most people attribute to Spider-Man. With much power goes much responsibility. Now, it doesn't go back to Spider-Man. It goes all, all the way back to the sword of Damocles. The idea that the king was in charge and Damocles thought that the king was having a grand old time being in charge. And the king invited them to swap places for a day. And that, that was when he began to realize the awesome responsibility of having that kind of power. And over the throne of the king was hung a sword hanging by a thin horsehair. The sword itself represented the fact that the person in charge not only had power, but was also under threat and had great responsibility to make sure that the power was applied fairly and justly, lest his enemies rise against him. And so we all have, I think, that obligation to try to find a way to guide those in great power in Washington to exercise their great responsibility somehow. And with that, this is Peter Jay. And for Nick Remesong, Chris Wolf, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, thank you all for joining us today as we journey forth on our continuing path toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.